Welcome to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Zamprin. Sounds like interest rates are going to stay flat. More cars are being stolen in Ontario. A Hamilton MPP scolding the Ford government. The PM is shuffling. Where are all these earwigs coming from? And I'll tell you why boomers are smiling. The GMH podcast begins now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. Welcome news for a change, finally, when it comes to the cost of living in this country. Because it sounds like the Bank of Canada is not going to raise interest rates again in 2023. That's that's what we're kind of figuring out with this Bank of Canada second quarter survey, which was conducted last month. And it shows that a median of participants, which include uh, senior economists or strategists involved in Canadian financial markets, they expect the bank to hold interest rates at that 22-year high of 5% until the end of 2023 before starting to cut rates in March. That's some pretty good news, finally. Paul Anachuk is a Vice President, Licensed Insolvency Trustee at BDO Debt Solutions and joins us on Good Morning Hamilton. Paul, good morning. How are you? Rick, I'm doing great. You know, I'm on your show talking about some good news because, as we know, I've been on for, you know, the last 10 rate increases. And, uh, you know, it's been really affecting those uh, mortgage holders and borrowers. And it's great to see, us, you know, a little bit of relief coming. Yeah, a lot of doom and gloom, that is for sure. So let's talk about this ray of light. And it is really a sigh of relief for people who are borrowing money, which is basically everyone under the sun. So let's talk about the survey that was just released. That's right, Rick. And and you know what? I bet there are many borrowers out there that are saying it's about time. And you know what? No doubt, because look what has has happened in the last year. The big bank was really being aggressive with the rate hikes, you know, to bring down inflation. You know, we've seen some of the sharpest and quickest rate increases in recent history. As I mentioned, it's been 10 in the last year. And the key lending rate really went from rock bottom at 0.25, which is basically as close to zero as we're going to get, where it now sits at 5%. You know, that is great. We've also seen the inflation numbers drop down to 2.8% in June, uh, which is great because that's within the Bank of Canada threshold where they want to be. But keep in mind, you know, while inflation's coming down, why there's going to be a rate pause there is still some signs in the economy that things are still a little rough. You know, shelter has gone up 30%. And we all know about food costs. They are still sitting about 9% here. So even though we have some good news with a potential pause for at least the rest of this year, how cautious should consumers be? Because there might be some people out there thinking, oh, okay, we'll be, we'll be good for the rest of this year. I can go out and spend some money. Rick, I would advise consumers to be very cautious because, again, let's go look back a couple of years ago and just really two years ago when the Bank of Canada and the governor, Tiff McCallum, has said, you know, rates are going to stay low for a period of time. And we know that didn't turn out because it was only a projection. And the rate pause is only a projection. There's other factors in the economy that could happen and potentially could still happen. So, you know what, while there is a pause, we should be looking at this as, okay, now is a little bit of relief. Now is a time to take a break. And now is a time to get really my financial house in order rather than starting to spend uh, money. We know that for many people who had a mortgage and it was you know 1.5% or 2%, whatever that number was, now it's coming up for renewal sometime this summer or later on this year. Now they're going to be staring at 
six, six and a half, seven percent as the mortgage rate, they might be thinking, well, how am I going to afford this? Should I dip into my RRSPs? Is that okay or a big no-no? That's always one of the big no-nos. And RSPs, and now think about it, it is really for your retirement and also for your future. It's not an emergency fund. By dipping into your RSPs, yes, you may feel some relief right off the bat, but what's going to happen is you are going to get taxed on that money. And I have seen it plenty of times where people have dipped into their RSPs only for next tax season to owe the government even more money. So let's talk about options because there are several options, including a debt consolidation, consumer proposal. We know the, the B word or bankruptcy. There's a lot of things that individuals or families can take advantage of. That's right. You know, but, but getting your financial house in order is, you know, more than that as well. You know, we're talking to people about, you know, get your budget in place right now. That is the key thing. You know, look at your budget. For those that are struggling, budgets are a great place where you can free up some excess uh, funds, you know, to really help tackle either your debt problems or still with the inflationary uh, issues that are going on. But you can also take a look at other things because rates are still low. You know, we talk about rates being at 5%, but back in 2001, that's where they were at. What happened after that is we did see some rate drops. And people took advantage of that. That's when people were really taking advantage of variable rate loans. So now's also the time to take a look, you know, can I consolidate my debts? Can I reduce my interest rates? Because we know, you know, credit cards are about 19%. Also, we're talking to people about credit counseling, consumer proposals, and bankruptcies. Because what we're looking for now is that people get ready for their future. Tackle their debt issues right now because we never know when the economy could all of a sudden turn around again and we're faced with more rate hikes. Paul Anacek is a vice, vice president and licensed insolvency trustee at BDO Debt Solutions. Joining us here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Any final advice for those who are looking at their bank accounts and their budgets and wondering how it's all going to work? Rick, uh, you know, word of the pause of rate hikes is certainly good news right now. But as I said it before, rate increases that we've seen in the past 10 months, as well as high inflation has left many people struggling. You know, a pause is not going to change if you're already struggling. Surveys show that people are worried and rightfully so. So for those listeners that are feeling overwhelmed and not sure what to do, it's important to know there are solutions. So I encourage you to reach out to a licensed insolvency trustee such as myself. Here at BDO, we're here to help and we're here to listen. So give us a call at one 855 Debt or visit our website at bdodebt.ca to schedule a free initial consultation where we can go over all those different options that are available. And we'll uh, review those options and dig a little deeper on uh, this Saturday's Ask the Experts with BDO Debt Solutions at 11 o'clock as uh, Paul and I uh, talk about things that are uh, making the financial wheel spin out of control in some cases, but a lot of options for you as you just heard. Paul, thanks for the time. We'll chat on Saturday. Thanks, Rick. We'll see you then. That is uh, Paul Anacek, Vice President, Licensed Insolvency Trustee at BDO Debt Solutions. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Vehicle theft is on the rise in Ontario, so much so that the Solicitor General not that long ago said a car is stolen in this province every 48 minutes. Years ago, my wife had her car stolen right from in front of our house. And it was found a couple days later in East Hamilton. It was basically a write-off. And it was not a good feeling. And for anyone who has had that happen to them, I, I know what you're going through. Given that 
uh, a car every basically under an hour, every 48 minutes is stolen in this province. It should come as no surprise that many drivers out there are growing pretty concerned about vehicle theft. Yet only a third of CAA survey respondents believe that they will ever be a victim, which is very interesting. They're, they're worried about it, but happening to them, that's, it's not, that's never going to happen to me. Elliot Silverstein is the Director of Government Relations with CAA Insurance and joins us on Good Morning Hamilton. Elliot, thanks for waking up with us this morning. How are you? Good morning. Thanks for having me. Do we know why auto theft is on the rise? Is it because the cost of living is so high these thieves are thinking, well, this is the way I can get rich quick? Well, it's two parts. I mean, one, you have the crimes of opportunity that we've always had where people are looking for a, a, a quick access to a vehicle. Um, on the other side of it, there is the, the growing organized nature of these thefts. And there's particular targeted vehicles that that people are looking for, um, either for, for use themselves or um, uh, to ship export and export uh, um, internationally. And, and both of them are problematic because uh, we want to make sure that people are taking the steps that they need to keep their car safe at all times, regardless of where you are, because we are seeing these trends rise and it is troubling. It's been a 72% increase in auto theft from 2014 to 2021, 14% higher this year compared to last year. Are vehicles easier to steal or are these thieves just getting better at doing so? It's a bit of both. I mean, what we're seeing more and more in vehicles is the convenience tool. So you have the key fobs with the push starts. Um, that is is new technology in the car, and, and they're able to access it a lot easier than you would with a conventional key. And, and that is troubling because the the uh, the length of time needed to get a car on the road is less. So so certainly it's a bit of a trade off right now. We are um, calling on manufacturers to to work on some of these challenges to make it safer in the future. That's a a long term goal, but in in the short term. We, we do want drivers to be more vigilant, take the time they need to keep their car safe based on their personal environment, because it, it is a shared responsibility right now, because we don't want the problems to get worse than they are today. We are discussing the rise in auto theft with Elliot Silverstein, the Director of Government Relations with CAA Insurance on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. The report identifies a false sense of security that Ontario drivers have. Talk about that. Well, I mean, what we see in the survey is that a lot of people are are aware of the situation and they're concerned, particularly in southern Ontario. It, it, we're seeing that as as the concentrated area where people are most concerned. What we, we found interesting is that people don't think it's going to happen to them. They don't think it's going to happen in their backyard. And, and, th- and that's the troubling part because that's where people get a little more relaxed in how they handle things. So one of the really telling pieces of our survey was that only um, a handful, six to eight percent, were using tools like a Faraday pouch, which would block the uh, key fob signals, or using a a steering wheel lock like the club in in the past to keep their car safe. So the actual tools that could be real deterrents are not being used by the general public on, on a significant significant level. Do we know why? Is it just they can't be bothered or, or is does it go back to they don't think it's going to happen to them? I think we're still early on in the conversation. And I think we, we spent so much time over the years telling people to lock their cars and keep valuables out of reach. And those numbers were quite high in the survey. So a lot of people are doing that. But that is now the basics. That, that, is, that is the must do. And, and it's not enough. 
and, and while we've done really well there, we really need to work on education. And that's where CAA is coming into play, is really trying to tell people they need to take greater precautions based on where they live and, and how they park their car. Even something as simple as putting your car in a garage. If you have access to a garage and you're not using it for your vehicle, it is time to step back and think to yourself, if 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 my car is at risk, should I be doing that? And even small steps like that can yield huge rewards right now. You've already mentioned a couple of the tips that can keep uh, people's vehicles safe from being stolen, including um, a steering wheel lock like the club or a Faraday box. One of the other ones that I didn't even think about this was if you have multiple vehicles in your driveway, let's just say, park the less expensive one closest to the street. Why is that a good tip? So when, when you're thinking about the fact that the thieves are getting access to these cars faster and faster, that the, the time it takes to get it on the road is so much shorter than before. If you have two vehicles and and in, in your in your household, if you park the lesser valued vehicle closer to the boulevard, it creates a bit of a barrier to get access to the other car. Mm. So even doing that alone could be a deterrent because if they're working with a matter of seconds or, or minutes, they may move on to somebody else and say, hey, you know what, it's too hard or it takes too much time to get access to that vehicle. So these types of small steps that people can do just in terms of changing habits could go a huge way to protect your vehicles and make sure that when you wake up in the morning, your vehicle's still there. We have one more tip, uh, one more minute for the last tip, and that is covering the VIN number. Why is that important? So again, you know, part of part of the um, the the challenge is the, the VIN number provides so much information. It's almost like the heart of, of your car. It has so much access to information, and that's where the, you know the cars can be uh, can 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 be cloned in terms of the information and whatnot. And that's something where you know because it is the lifeblood to the information of your vehicle. Um, the more you can do to protect that. When- when it's idle, the better it is. You need to make sure that that's accessible um, other times, but you want to make sure that's covered um, if you're if you're in, uh, on the road and let's say in a parking lot or or so forth, and keep that covered so people can't access it. Yeah, cover it with a uh, a CD cover. Maybe put some hockey tape on it. Uh, just hide it Even from piece, those. Just things. a piece of paper. Yeah, or or just a piece of paper. That'll that'll do the trick too. Elliot, thanks for the time and uh, thanks for sharing the tips today. Thank you so much. Elliot Silverstein is the director of government relations with CAA Insurance. Yeah, park those vehicles in your garage, have them locked, put on that steering wheel lock, maybe get a Faraday box or pouch for that key fob, hide the VIN, all great tips from the CAA. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. For parents of children who are aging or have aged out of the pediatric health system. So just imagine a parent uh, who has a child who has complex healthcare needs who at some point in their life is going to get past the age in which they're going to see the specialist that they have seen for years, in some cases, maybe since birth. So yesterday there was a roundtable discussion and one of the participants was hearing from parents, that being Hamilton Mountain NDP MPP, Monique Taylor, who joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Monique, good morning. How are you? I'm well, thanks, Rick. How are you? I'm good. You're also the critic for children's services, so this file this falls in your file as well. And mm-hmm. it sounds like this is a situation that needs attention. What did you hear out of yesterday's roundtable? Well, just the frustration, the fear, um, the unknown, um, and the we're not taking this anymore <laughs> um, from from parents for sure. Uh, you know, they are they've like like as you said, they've had the same team, and not just a specialist, but like say five, six. 12 specialists that have surrounded their child uh, for their entire life. 
Uh, and now once they turn 16, they say, okay, well, the tra- it's not those doctors, it's the policies, says, okay, the transition's going to start because at 18, your whole new life starts. Well, at 16, they're not even hearing anything and they're trying to, they're waiting for this transition plan. And a lot of times they're just being told, you know, uh, contact your family doctor. Well, we all know that family doctors are not capable of taking care of these critical care kids. Uh, so at 18, uh, they, they fall off the cliff. Uh, they uh, lose their entire team that they've had and are now sent to other doctors who really aren't equipped or have the knowledge or background of these, of these young people. It's terrifying. It sounds like we need a transition period for when these children start getting older that they uh, are contacted by these other physicians who specialize in that, whatever the illness or disease or, or, or complex care that is needed. And right now that transition period isn't being or isn't happening. Was that one of the suggestions that parents had? What, what else did they bring to the table? Well, they, they said that the transition is already supposed to be there. There is supposed to be a transition period between 16 and 18, but nobody is seeing this happen. So it's a, it's a fail. It's a fail, right? Mm-hmm. There's, there's nothing there. And we don't have the capacity in the system to be able to maintain all of these critical care kids into the adult system like there isn't the training there isn't the background so i think we need to uh, I, I you know what honestly i think yesterday was the first part of uh, me having the conversation with these folks hearing what they have to say now talking to the hospitals talking to the caregivers talking uh, to other people doing the consultation and truly looking at what can be implemented for a, a good plan uh, that makes sense let's remember this policy like of 18 aging out is is so old right like kids didn't live as long as they're living now we have the technology that is extending the lives now we need the policy that catches up with that and meets those needs and make sure that we have quality of like lifespan uh, not just an age number which knocks them out of a system into a, a system that is unknown Joining us on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, Monique Taylor, the Hamilton Mountain NDP MPP and critic for Children's Services for the party. We're talking about uh, the pediatric health care system, which really has a uh, a big uh, dark line in terms of when a child who has very complex health care needs hits a certain age, that being 18, then they're thrust into the, in, into the abyss of finding another health care provider, which is very tough from a from a health uh, care worker perspective, they must feel powerless as well. I mean, they've treated and helped these children for years, and all of a sudden they have to say goodbye too. They must feel powerless. It, it must be awful for them um, to have to lose those children into a system where they know is not equipped to be able to meet their needs. Um, but uh, but they're all stuck. And so, you know, while talking, we've heard about Tammy and Keisha, who are currently in Jaravinsky. Um, Keisha's 18 years old, and so she's just hit that aging out piece. Um, and she's now in Jaravinsky. And uh, Jaravinsky is, you know, they're behind all of this. They know that we need uh, a change. McMaster who's lost Keisha uh, to the adult system, they know that we're in trouble and that we, that we need changes to the system. So it's really a matter of now everybody getting together and the government seeing that these policy changes have to happen uh, to, to make sure that, that we're giving people the quality of life and, and protecting the healthcare workers who, who feel helpless, uh, who uh, just want to be able to do better, but are, are hand-strung uh, by policy. 
So how do we close this gap? Do we need new legislation? Is it just a directive? Do we have to execute better? Like, how, do, how do we solve this? Well, that's, that's, that's my next steps of trying to figure that out um, and, uh, and, and making sure that, uh, that the government is aware. Um, like, that's my job, right? As, as an MPP, as a critic, uh, it's my job to amplify the, the voices of these families and the struggles that they're feeling and now, uh, you know, p- bump it up uh, to make sure that, uh, that the government sees it and that, uh, that they know that people are looking for change in the system. Uh, I want to ask you, and this is a little bit off topic, but it has to do with a massive issue in the community, and that is uh, homelessness, encampments. We know that the mayor of Hamilton has sent a letter to the the federal government asking for some funding for uh, help with our shelter crisis. We're over capacity in this community. From a provincial standpoint, what's being done in this regard? Well, obviously, I don't think enough. Um, I think that uh, we need a whole lot of money injected into our community from the from the province. They're sitting on twenty two billion dollars, you know. Uh, so it's their responsibility as well uh, to to make sure that people have homes and and that we have a, a a solution like today. We can't be just waiting for houses to be built. That's that's not going to be the solution. We need to make sure that we have temporary safe housing uh, that uh, can ensure that people have roofs over their heads. I mean, the tents we're, we're seeing are, are growing by the day. Um, and with the number of um, refugees uh, and asylum seekers that are hitting our um, communities every day, uh, we need immediate attention. And that is going to come in the form of dollars um, from the provincial government. And they have it to do it. Uh, so it's just a matter of uh, them seeing the priority in making sure that the These people are safe and have roofs over their head. Ms. Taylor, appreciate the time today. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. Have a great day. You too. Monique Taylor is the Hamilton Mountain NDP MPP and the critic for Children's Services. We talk about this pediatric health system gap that is occurring. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. Justin Trudeau has a busy day ahead. In fact, he's expected to shuffle his cabinet later on this morning. Swearing-in ceremony is going to take place at Rideau Hall for what is expected to be the most significant change in a couple of years. Taria Isri is a reporter with Global News and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Taria, good morning. How are you today? Good. How are you? I'm good. How big of a change are we expecting the PM to make today? I mean, this is being called the most significant shuffle of Trudeau's Uh, the last eight years since Trudeau's come to power. So we are expecting a lot of movement. Um, Seven cabinet ministers and all will be out. All will be moving in. Um, As far as some of the more high-profile names that are gone, Public Safety Minister Marco Mendicino is uh, expected to be dropped. Now, he's faced a lot of criticism um, recently over how his office has handled some big files, notably the transfer of killer Paul Bernardo, also how it's fielded um, allegations of foreign election interference. So he's expected to be dropped, and that likely won't come as a surprise to many. Uh, One change that will likely surprise a few people is uh, Justice Minister David Lametti. He is being shuffled out of cabinet. Um, Some of these exits have already been announced publicly. There have been a flurry of um, announcements from several cabinet ministers. They are not running again. Uh, Omar al-Gabra, the transportation minister, announced yesterday that uh, he won't be seeking re-election. Now, he's been in federal politics for about 20 years, considered a close ally of Trudeau, but he was also at the helm during a pretty rocky period for 
airports and airlines as they tried to recover from the pandemic. And I mean, the fact is, you know, air travel is still quite frustrating for a lot of Canadians. So that might be, you know, change in that office might be an attempt to reboot, you know, a file that just does not seem to be um, going in the right direction for a lack of better words. So some fairly familiar faces are going to be leaving. Is this shuffle a sign that the the government wants to refocus on maybe some other big priority items? Not that they're not focusing on housing or the rising cost of living, but we might see greater attention to that as a result of this shuffle? You're exactly right. Um, government sources that I've been speaking to say this is really about having a new front bench for Trudeau that is focused squarely on the economy. Um, you know, the government realizes Canadians are very frustrated with stubborn inflation, um, with the rising cost of living, with the lack of affordable housing. So these are going to be the main issues that this new cabinet really tries to hone in on as they return to Parliament in September and as they prepare for, you know, the possibility of an election not not too far off. So um, I think you're right to say that this cabinet is really going to be narrowing in on those issues that are really frustrating a lot of Canadians who are struggling to get by right now. We have 90 more seconds with Global News reporter Taria Isri talking about the Prime Minister's uh, cabinet shuffle that's going to happen later on this morning in Ottawa. Is there going to be any impact on the Liberal NDP supply and confidence agreement? I mean, government sources that I've spoken to say they are not, the Liberal not expecting uh, an election before 2025. I mean, things could change. They always do. Um, but, you know, as long as the Liberals continue to deliver on some of those, uh, you know, promises that they made to the NDP in order to keep this agreement, um, you know, afloat, then we shouldn't see any change. That'd be things like uh, pharmacare, for example. Um, but, you know, it's it's uh, it's really anyone's guess. Uh, I, I should mention there's another big sort of move that we're going to see. We're expecting Defence Minister Anita Anand to be shifted to some sort of economic uh, portfolio. She'll be replaced by um, Emergency Preparedness Minister Bill Blair, former Toronto Police Chief. He's expected to take over that file, and it's interesting. There's going to be a shake-up at a really interesting time for this office. There's a defence policy review, also the war in Ukraine. So, um, you know, he's taking over a pretty significant file at a very critical time, and it's a major promotion for him. Absolutely, on both fronts. Uh, Taria, thank you very much for your time today and breaking down today's Cabinet Shuffle. You're welcome. That is Taria Isri, reporter with Global News. You can check out her story later on tonight. Global News at 5.30 and 6 and a full recap of what has happened uh, at Rideau Hall later on this morning on Global National at 6.30. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Have you noticed an earwig or two or more in your home recently? Well, apparently there is a reason for that. Rory Scott is the branch manager with Orkin Canada in Stony Creek and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Rory, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Rick. I'm good. Why are we seeing more earwigs? I've, I've noticed at least two in my home over the last couple of weeks. So, I mean, the biggest reason you're seeing more earwigs inside right now is the hot weather. Um, normally, earwigs enjoy the sort of cool, damp environment around the outside of homes. And when we get these uh, extended uh, heat spells, those areas tend to dry out and the earwigs search uh, for those sort of cool areas and end up uh, coming inside. So as we all crank up our ACs today, tomorrow and Friday, we may see more earwigs in our houses. 
Yeah, that's right. I mean, there's uh, lots of ways that you can try to prevent that and eliminate those damp areas in and around the home to try to keep them away and uh, prevent them from finding their way inside. So what are some of the things we should be doing around the house to keep these earwigs at bay? So, I mean, a couple of things is obviously looking for those moist environments, areas where you have maybe overgrown vegetation up against the foundation, cutting that back to dry them out. Um, if you have mulch up against the house that retains moisture, earwigs love sort of burrowing down in the cracks and crevices of those areas. Another spot is uh, your downspouts. If you have like leaf litter and buildup within the downspouts, when it does rain, it tends to stay very damp and moist and your wigs uh, will live and build up in there. When we get the hot weather um, and it dries out, they'll make their way inside. Now, it, it seems to be a little worse this year, or at least more people are saying, hey, I have an earwig in my home. I've heard two or three people here at work and outside of work saying, yeah, I, I've saw, you know, I saw one the other day. Is it worse this year? Um, I don't know if it's worse this year. We just tend to notice it when they do arrive. I know uh, for us at Orkin Canada, um, the call volume is probably significantly up over previous years for how many times we're going out and treating the exterior perimeter of homes and businesses for your wigs. When does it become a problem? Like, why are you getting those calls? Is it because people are noticing more than a handful inside? Yeah, I mean, Rick, everyone's different, right? To you and I, one or two might not be a, a large deal, but uh, for somebody else, uh, they don't want to have any inside, right? So everyone's threshold is a little bit different. So it all depends on the customer when, uh, you know, they justify that they want to have a company like Working Canada come out and do a treatment for them. Rory Scott is the branch manager with Orkin Canada in Stony Creek. We're talking about uh, earwigs and how more and more people are noticing these uh, tiny bugs inside their homes homes. Uh, do they cause any damage? Are they a problem? I mean, earwigs are sort of environmental janitors, right? They feed on both plant and, uh, you know, dead insects and whatnot. So when you do get them in large numbers, they can do damage to, uh, you know, ornamental flowers and whatnot you may have in your gardens on the outside of the home. So homeowners shouldn't necessarily be concerned that, you know, these bugs are chewing on wood or, or damaging, I don't know, the foundation or whatever the case is. No, they don't do any sort of damage like that. Um, they're more just unsightly when they come inside. Um, I mean, a lot of people have sort of been raised that they're, uh, you know, a problem. And uh, I mean, nobody wants to have insects inside their home where they're trying to enjoy their uh, their time. Speaking of a long-held myth that they're called earwigs because they they get into your ears while you're sleeping. Is there any truth to that? No, no, Rick, that's an old uh, wise tale. Um, they don't uh, get into your ear, or get in and can't crawl out. Um, so no, that doesn't actually happen in real life. And as we know, climate change is a big thing. The, the planet is getting hotter. Are you noticing that year after year, you're getting more calls due to earwigs? Yeah, I mean, this year in particular, the calls are definitely up. Um but yeah, like uh, you mentioned there, as uh, you know, the climate gets warmer during those summer months, um, I mean, insects, just like any other uh, animal, are going to adapt. And I mean, they need to find an area. A lot of times our homes tend to be those those good areas to get into. And how do you tackle this problem? Is it basically just spraying the outside of the home? Do you do anything inside? What's the What's the game plan? 
Yeah, depending on the problem, Rick, we'll do an exterior treatment. So treating the, you know, outside perimeter of the home, window frames, door frames, cracks and crevices, those areas that earwigs are going to try to enter. Um, if the homes experience like a large number inside, we may also look to do uh, interior treatment. Our technicians too will sort of make recommendations to the homeowner with those sort of habitat modifications that they can do around the outside perimeter and any maybe structural ceiling and things like that to hopefully reduce them getting in in the future. I was on the uh, orkincanada.ca website this morning and I had no idea that earwigs have wings. Yeah, earwigs actually have really well-developed wings. Um, they just choose not to fly regularly. But um, I mean, when they do fly, it is very short, uh, short sort of bursts. They much rather sort of crawl around within the soil and different areas like that. Hmm. But yeah, a lot of people don't know that. It's like having a superpower and not using it. Yeah, yeah, exactly <laughs> right. Hey, Rory, we'll let you go here. Thanks for your time today and good luck in the battle uh, against earwigs. All right. Thanks for having me, Rick. Rory Scott is a branch manager with Orkin Canada in Stony Creek. As you just heard, pretty busy. Busier this year than ever before in the battle against earwigs. And again, you know, his main message, make sure that the clutter around the home, especially those stones or rocks or vegetation, anything that earwigs um, will love to cool down in, especially uh uh, a moist, soiled place. Hard nowadays because it's so hot outside, and that's why they're coming in, because we're cranking up our ACs. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. It's a new report out. It's actually called the Happiness at Work Index from ADP Canada, and it shows, well, a, a significant gap um, when it comes to different regions in the country, different demographics in the nation in terms of how satisfied we are in the workplace. And while overall it sounds like we're happy, there are some people who are not. Heather Haslam is the Vice President of Marketing at ADP Canada and joins us on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Heather, good morning. How are you? I am very happy. Thank you so much for having me today, Rick. Well, thanks for coming on. I too am happy. Are, are most Canadian workers happy at uh, the workplace? Well, what we saw with the index in July is that we're happier. So we went up in this month over last month, which is good news. So the National Work Happiness Score now is at a 6.7 out of 10. So it's up to you or, you know, or anybody on how happy that is relatively. But understanding things like how that compares to previous months, as well as those things that you indicated, the secondary indicators, regional differences, generational differences, that's where really some of the interesting insights come. What, why is it different this month to last month? Has anything changed? Um, well, actually, the best the best way of actually understanding what drove the change is to is to look at the secondary indicator. So there's really just let me let me ground you in how the study works. It's a monthly study. We go out to a representative sample across the country, working full time and part time Canadian, and we ask. There's two parts to it. One half is the simple question: How happy are you today in your current role and responsibilities? And that's that that primary indicator. That actually went up this month, Rick, and it went to 6.9. The second half of the weighting though is from these secondary indicators. And that's where you really start to understand, okay, what's driving that? And so 
All of the scores went up this month, with the exception of one. Recognition and support went down. But things like options for career advancement went up one point. Compensation and benefits also went up um, one point. And then the, the, the final one, and the one that's actually the, the highest right now, and I think it has something to do with where we are in the season in terms of summer is work-life balance and flexibility also went up one. And that sits at 6.9 as well. So really high score on that. Yeah, and that is understandable with more and more people taking vacations or maybe planning vacations as they're filling out this survey thinking, yeah, my work-life balance is pretty good. But when it comes to different demographics, age demographics, we're seeing something of an anomaly um, when it comes to boomers. What's going on with boomers? Boomers are very happy, Rick. So even from the inception of this this monthly index, the ADP um, Happiness at Work Index, the boomers have been the happiest generation and and by far. So this month in July, they did go down one point um, from June, but that was still only down to 7.2. When you look at other generations like Gen X at 6.6 or millennials and Gen Z at 6.7, you really start to see the differences. So in the same way that you just alluded to, hey, maybe we're happier in the summer because we've taken a vacation or we're planning one, maybe we're happier as we're getting closer to retirement because we can see that light at the end of the tunnel. (laughs) That's a good point. They're seeing the finish line. Although on the other side of the equation, there are boomers who are probably thinking to themselves, geez, I'm still in the workplace. I should be retired by now, but this darn cost of living is keeping me on the job. Is is that a factor at all? Well, it it must be for sure. I mean, there are a number of drivers that come around happiness at work, and that's why those secondary indicators are really important to understand. If you feel recognized, if you're if if your compensation and your benefits uh, you feel are very equal to what it is that you're putting in, and presumably that's better towards the end of your career, those are some of the indicators that really help us understand why there are those generational differences. Pretty cool stats out of the latest ADP Canada Happiness at Work Index. Heather, thanks for sharing the stats with us. Rick, uh, you played a perfect song right before this. I hope you continue to be super happy at work. Likewise. Thanks for joining us. Have a good one. Bye-bye. You too. Heather Haslam is the Vice President of Marketing at ADP Canada. Provincially, Ontario is actually towards the bottom of the happiness list. We rank a 6.6 out of 10. Quebec is number one at 7, followed by Saskatchewan, Manitoba at 6.8, BC 6.7, Alberta also at 6.6. Last on the list, Atlantic Canada. They're not very happy at work. 6.5 out of 10 when it comes to the regional happiness at work index from ADP Canada. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 5.30 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.